0: Welcome to a series of talks about objective consciousness, an objective universe and an objective way to awaken, expanding upon the works of George I. Gurdjieff and Russell A. Smith. Due to its popularity, we are releasing the whole of chapter two of the audiobook of the blueprint of consciousness, the uncreation of the universe. This is part four and describes the creation of suns, the creation of neutron stars, how all the elements in our universe gets created, and perhaps why our endlessness needed to create this megalo-cosmos. Let's begin. The Blueprint of Consciousness, An Accelerated Path to Awakening, by Russell A. Smith. Chapter 2 The Uncreation of the Universe Part 4 Maybe the neutron does not decay in the center of a black hole because it is protected by a different set of laws. Laws that only exist inside of a black hole. Stephen Hawking came up with the theory that black holes decay. You have heard of that, right? Well, that fits nicely with Gurdjieff's diminishing Holy Sun Absolute scenario. If God is like a neutron at the center of a black hole, where all the forces are united, and if the black hole is decaying, then the black hole will keep getting smaller and smaller until it ceases to be a black hole and is no longer able to protect the neutron. Thus, forcing God to create our now-existing megalocosmos, wherein the neutron, the third force, could be independently created and ultimately find dependent stability sparking creation and producing something that could flow back into the Holy Sun absolute halting its diminishment okay physical matter is thrown out into the universe to the fate of time where it can coalesce in the cause of suns and make neutrons the god particle, thus adding a third force to the universe. So, the protons and neutrons make deuterium. Two deuterium make helium. Three helium make carbon. A carbon and a helium make oxygen. An oxygen and a carbon make silicon in large suns it keeps on going until the suns finally make iron but there we run into the next snag in the model of creation unfortunately suns cannot make any elements beyond iron that is nuclear fusion can only make the first 26 elements of the periodic table. But no more. Nuclear fusion keeps the suns from collapsing. That is, we have all this stuff in a pile pushing down, and we have nuclear explosions in the centre pushing up, and the balance between the pushing down and the pushing up keeps the suns in a state of equilibrium. Okay, the nuclear explosions in the cores of suns are pushing up against the matter of the suns, which is pushing down. But scientists tell us that very soon, after the suns start producing iron, the nuclear explosions in their cores cease, and the suns, explode. So, after producing iron in their cores, the suns blow up in one of the most catastrophic explosions we know of this side of the Big Bang, called a supernova. But, why do suns blow up when they start to produce iron in their cores? Well, iron is very stable. It absorbs heat. Without heat, no additional elements can be fused. Since no additional elements can be fused, the nuclear explosions created in their cores cease. Since the suns can no longer counteract the weight of themselves pushing down, gravity wins. Thus, after producing iron in their cores, the suns collapse. Kaboom! They go supernova and spew out the first 26 elements into what is called a nebula. An amazing story. We started with a singularity, all forces together. Followed by a big bang that spewed out protons and electrons. Two stable particles which make up most of the universe. After which protons and electrons combined in the cores of suns or two protons fused and one became a third particle the neutron. So Although most of the universe is still in the state of hydrogen, the universe now has three forces. However, when the third force is produced, it only has 15 minutes to live, unless it is able to find a proton with which to dance. If it does, it fills up its dance card for 10 to the 33 Years. Woo! Thereafter, the first 25 elements are made inside the cores of suns. But very shortly, after those suns start to produce the 26th element iron, they explode. One scientist jokingly said, we watch these Star Wars movies, And they have these death stars. Things that kill suns. But now we know, all we had to do was throw an iron skillet at it. Who would have thought that the production of iron would kill a sun? But it does. When a sun starts to produce iron, the nuclear fusion in its core ceases and the mass of the sun causes it to collapse and explode. Massive suns live approximately 10 million years. They spend about 90% of that life fusing hydrogen into helium. When the hydrogen starts to run out, the helium starts fusing into carbon, which takes around a million years. When the helium starts to run out, things start to really speed up. The carbon begins to fuse into neon, which continues for about a thousand years. The neon fuses into silicon, which only lasts about one year. Finally, the silicon fuses into iron, which takes about a day. At that stage, the Sun literally resembles an onion. Each inner shell contains heavier elements. Hydrogen is the furthest out. Then there is a shell of helium. Then carbon. Then oxygen. Then neon. Then silicon. And finally, there is an iron core. And very soon, after suns start to make iron, they go supernova. Kaboom! We used to think that the other elements were created when a sun goes supernova. That is, the elements that are in the shells that surrounded the iron core are slammed into each other when the sun explodes, and thus creates all the other elements of the periodic table. But, within the last few years, scientists have realized that is not how it works. One of the videotapes you watched was called How the Universe Built Your Car. It explained that you need copper for your car, for the wiring. Copper is the 29th element. How the heck do you get copper? if not from supernovas? Well, it turns out that copper gets made in second-generation suns, suns that are made from the debris of previous supernovas. Here is how it works. Second-generation suns contain all the elements that are produced in the first-generation suns. They are still mostly made of hydrogen, but scattered throughout are iron, silicon, magnesium, potassium, etc. All the elements created in the first generation suns. What happens next is really cool. In the outer regions of those second generation suns are iron nuclei, which have 26 protons and 26 neutrons. With 26 protons, the iron nuclei have quite a positive charge. If another proton comes along and says, Can I join you? The 26 protons say, Nah, no way. Our 26 positive charges won't let your puny singular positive charge come anywhere near us. Thus, no other protons are able to fuse and create heavier elements. But The universe has a trick. It says, you know, we cannot get any more protons to stick to that iron nucleus because they keep getting repelled by the 26 protons. So instead, let us take a neutron which does not have a positive charge and collide it with the nucleus. Perhaps we can get that to stick thus an additional neutron gets fused to the iron nucleus then another neutron collides and sticks then another and another and another and another which is great for the neutrons since they only have 15 minutes to live the iron nucleus still has its 26 protons, but now it has 30, 40 or 50 neutrons stuck to it as well. Then, something amazing happens, called beta minus decay. Miraculously, one of the neutrons decays into a proton, an electron and an antineutrino the electron and the antineutrino are liberated, leaving the proton behind, which turns the iron atom into cobalt, an element with 27 protons. When another neutron suffers beta-minus decay, the cobalt becomes nickel, another one, and voila, copper. Eureka! Because of this trick, the universe began to make elements heavier than iron. With every beta minus decay, the nucleus added one more proton, and the universe added one more element. From 26 iron, we get 27 cobalt, 28 nickel, 29 copper, 30, zinc, 31, gallium, 32, germanium, 33, arsenic, 34, selenium, 35, bromine, 36, krypton, and then someone wrote Superman. Why do you think neutrons suffer beta minus decay? After all, they found a proton to dance with. You said that if they married a proton, they would enjoy the life of the proton. So, why would some of them decay? It is because they are extras. It is like the guy who has three wives. Sooner or later, two of them implode. So, When 26 protons were bonded with 26 neutrons, things were good. But when you start getting an extra girl in the model, an extra girl in the model, and an extra girl in the model, you start having difficulties. Catfights and mental breakdowns. Technically, it is because the extra neutrons do not have their own protons to bond with. In a nucleus, the attractive force between the neutrons and protons. Due to the strong nuclear force, results in each proton and each neutron being less massive than they would be as free particles. Bound systems, like stable nuclei, become bound by exporting energy during formation. And this loss of energy results in lower total mass. Free neutrons decay because they are more massive than the total mass of the proton, electron and antineutrino that would result from their decay. Atoms seek stability. Thus, this instability results in beta minus decay. Okay. That works for the middle part of the periodic table, but to make really heavy elements like gold, platinum and lead, you will require something even more amazing. That is, you cannot just beta minus decay your way into gold. Firstly, you need really massive suns to go supernova and become neutron stars. You've heard of neutron stars, right? A neutron star is the core of a collapsed sun that initially has so much mass, so much gravity, that when it collapses, its electrons and protons get squeezed into each other and become neutrons. What's left is a core of tightly packed neutrons. It is so tightly packed that a teaspoonful weighs as much as Mount Everest. The reason this happens is because of empty space. Atoms are mostly empty space. A model Russell likes to use to explain this is Question If you took a hydrogen atom and enlarged its proton to the size of a dime how far away do you think its electron would be? answer six tenths of a mile or six football fields away wow that is very far away let us keep it simple and say half a mile away making our atom of hydrogen with its electron orbiting the dime half a mile away a total of one mile across Can you imagine a mile-wide spherical ball with only a dime in the middle? If you can, you will understand how atoms are mostly empty space. In addition, neutron stars are very heavy. Let us imagine that when the electrons in the core get squished into the dime-sized protons, which are at the middle of each mile-wide sphere, those dime-sized protons become the size of nickels, after which, the core keeps collapsing, and, as it does, the nickels are shoved very close to each other. As such, each mile-wide sphere, which originally contained only one dime, now contains ...a quadrillion nickels. Wow! We are very rich. And we are also very heavy. No wonder a teaspoonful of a neutron star... ...weighs as much as a mountain. This may be a simple model... ...but it does help us to understand... ...why neutron stars are so heavy. In fact... The gravity of a neutron star is so immense that if you were on the surface of a neutron star, which you couldn't be, but if you were, and if you climbed to the top of an 8-foot stepladder, which you couldn't do, but if you did, and then jumped off, when you hit the surface of that neutron star, you would be travelling at approximately 6 million miles an hour after only falling 8 feet. Here on the planet Earth, if you jumped off an 8-foot stepladder, you would be travelling at approximately 15 miles per hour after falling 8 feet. 6 million miles per hour versus 15 miles per hour. That is 400,000 times faster. Wow! That is moving. Why don't neutron stars decay after 15 minutes? After all, they are not dancing with protons. Well, the stronger the gravity, the slower the flow of time. Therefore, the neutron's life is extended. Probably not by a significant amount, but by some. Even if it were a significant amount, the neutrons would still decay, which would eventually cause their demise. Then, what is the answer? The answer is reincarnation. Wow, really? Reincarnation? Yes. What happens is neutrons rapidly decay into protons, electrons and antineutrinos. But the gravity is so immense that they almost instantly fuse back into neutrons. That death and rebirth cycle reconstitutes the neutron star. Okay, back to answering the question. How does the universe make gold? Answer. Most solar systems in the universe are binary systems. That is, most solar systems have two suns. Some have more. If one goes supernova and becomes a neutron star, and then the other goes supernova and also becomes a neutron star, those two neutron stars will be orbiting each other. And over time, they will get closer and closer and closer until they finally collide, creating what is called a kilonova. When they do, there is an incredible explosion which makes chunks of neutron nuclei nuclei so large that when 79 neutrons of beta minus decay into protons, you get gold. Recently, scientists were able to witness two colliding neutron stars. And when they looked at the debris, they were amazed at how much gold there actually was. It was like, oh my god, Earth-sized chunks Of gold. Got it? So. Suns make the first group of elements. Up to iron. The middle group. Like copper. Is made with the help of a trick. Finally. The really heavy elements. Like gold. Are made. When neutron stars collide. That. Is creation. In the language of physics. However, in Gurdjieff's model, creation occurred because our endlessness was trying to overcome the merciless heropass, i.e., the flow of time itself. It seems that the merciless heropass was causing the Holy Sun Absolute to diminishing volume, which forced our endlessness to create the now existing universe in which things could arise outside of the Holy Sun Absolute and flow back into it, thus halting its diminishment. But before we tackle Gurdjieff's scenario and uncreate the universe, let us try to understand a bit more about the process of creation. We will start with the strong nuclear force, and then discuss how galaxies are made. The former, Russell likes to call the Velcro effect. You know how Velcro works, don't you? Imagine that protons are like prickly Velcro, and that neutrons are like soft Velcro. Then, inside suns, if a prickly proton collides with a soft neutron, they will stick. Now, we have a proton, a prickly guy, stuck to a neutron, a soft guy. Then, if a second proton and neutron, which are also stuck to each other, collide with the first proton and neutron, the second soft neutron will stick to the first prickly proton, and the second prickly proton will stick to the first soft neutron. And the four together will make helium two prickly protons stuck to two soft neutrons okay the two prickly protons are now stuck to each other's soft neutron protons normally repel but because of the neutrons additional protons can now join together in the same nucleus creating heavier elements in physics it is called the strong nuclear force, a force that causes neutrons to hold protons together. Russell calls that industrial Velcro. Because of this, more protons can be added to the nucleus. OK, that pretty much covers a few of the videotapes you watched. How the universe built your car, creation and supermassive black holes. The latter was made in the year 2000, when scientists really started to realise that every galaxy has a supermassive black hole at its centre. Supermassive black holes are a million to a billion times bigger than our sun. Holy moly! Are you kidding me? And then, they talked about the orbital speeds of the outermost stars, the sigma, a speed that is relative to the size of its supermassive black hole. They also suggested that supermassive black holes came into existence before stars formed. Otherwise, there would not be a relationship between the sigma of the outermost stars and the size of the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. Einstein said, mass tells space how to curve. Space tells mass how to move. If space were two-dimensional, it would be similar to a trampoline. Put a bowling ball on a trampoline and the trampoline depresses. The mass of the bowling ball tells the trampoline how to curve. Then roll a marble across the trampoline and the curve of the trampoline tells the marble how to move. Thus mass tells space how to curve. Space tells mass how to move. The tape also explained that the mass of every supermassive black hole is one-two-hundredth the mass of its galaxy. Why are supermassive black holes one-two-hundredth the mass of their galaxies? The scientists did not know. That got Russell to thinking. If all galaxies started out as globular clusters, spheres, and rotated, via angular momentum, which flattened them into disks, like our Milky Way, how much of that flattened disk would equal 1 200th the volume of the sphere? If a globular cluster, sphere, like a spinning ball of pizza dough, flattened into a disk, logically, there would be a lot more dough in the central region of the sphere when it flattened than there would be at the outer edges when they flattened. Russell asked, how big would the central column of the collapsing dough that became the supermassive black hole have to be in order for the supermassive black hole to be one two hundredth the mass of the sphere? Here is what he found out. 1 200th the volume of a sphere with a diameter of 34 inches would be contained in a 2 inch wide column at the centre of the sphere. Or, a central 2 inch wide column of a 34 inch ball of pizza dough contains 1 200th the mass of that ball of dough. A 34-inch-wide spinning ball of pizza dough can flatten, and a central 2-inch-wide column of that collapsing ball would scrunch down and become a supermassive black hole, containing 1-200th the mass of that spinning ball of dough. So, a globular cluster of hydrogen spins collapses into a disk and the collapsed central area approximately 5.77% of the cluster becomes the supermassive black hole at its core with a mass that is equal to 1 200th the mass of the cluster. However, there is another possibility. Russell thought If I blew up a massive sphere of concrete with TNT, debris would go in all directions. Certainly, a bunch of the concrete would be vaporized into dust. But, chunks of concrete would survive the blast and be blown everywhere. Therefore, it may be that supermassive black holes came first because they were chunks of the Holy Sun Absolute that were blown into space at the time of the Big Bang. Chunks of the original black hole were spewed into space, dimpling the fabric of space-time. Hydrogen then gathered in these spherical dimples The black hole chunks created dimples of corresponding sizes, which could only hold a requisite amount of hydrogen, an amount that was 200 times more massive than the chunks that created the dimples. If that is the case, then hold the pizza. It is amazing, and it makes for perfect sense. Okay, that pretty much explains the model of creation according to physics, including the creation and interaction of the three forces. Now, we shall return to the changing of the Law of Seven. That concludes today's podcast. If you would like a chance to read the whole book, the Blueprint of Consciousness, an accelerated path to awakening, which is available as a high-quality 520-page hardback and also as a PDF download, simply visit the store at our website, thedogteachings.com. The Blueprint of Consciousness contains an objective exercise in awakening that has literally awakened hundreds of people. Be free. Be awake. Be real, and realize your full potential as a human being. On our website, you will be able to listen to other talks, obtain diagrams, animations, supporting videos, and much, much more. In addition, you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook under The Dog Teachings. And, as a reminder, we have two Zoom classes every Saturday, to assist you. Level 1 is freely available for anyone who purchases the Blueprint of Consciousness. And the other is for those who have obtained the Master Exercises and the Double or Nothing Exercises. See under resources, Zoom classes, for more details. All at the thedogteachings.com That's T-H-E D-O-G T-E-A C-H-I-N-G-S dot com. Goodbye. Until next time.